In 26 AD, the Roman emperor sent uh, to the region of Judea a new proconsul or person that we would call governor uh, named Pontius Pilate. At this point in history, the Romans ruled most of the civilized world. And over those people that they had conquered, they gave a lot of freedoms. As long as those people would pay taxes and they would not rebel against Rome, they pretty much had freedom to do what they wanted to do. However, the Jews in Rome had always had this tension. The tension centered around the fact that Jews did not want the Roman gods or their Roman emperors worshipped in their lands. The previous Roman governors had given the Jews some slack in this, and they had acquiesced to their request. But Pilate came in with a very heavy hand. He wanted to establish early in his reign who was in charge and who called the shots. And so one of his first moves was to order Roman standards to be placed in the city of Jerusalem. These standards were used in Roman military campaigns. They had long poles. On the end of the poles, they had metal um, engraved images of the Roman Caesar. And under the cover of darkness, at night, he had Roman soldiers place these Roman standards all throughout Jerusalem. When the Jews woke up the next morning, they were angry and they were in shock. Their law made it very clear. It was forbidden to have any graven images and to have those in their holy city was an absolute shock to the people of Jerusalem. It's hard for us to imagine just how they felt, but let me give you an illustration that may help some of you. If you are a die-hard Georgia Bulldog fan, I want you to imagine going to the city of Athens, walking around Athens, and on every light post seeing a flag that, was, uh, that said, Go Florida Gators. And then outside of Sanford Stadium, a massive banner cheering for the Florida Gators. You take the feeling that a die-hard Georgia fan would have, and you put it on steroids, and you might come close to the seething anger the Jews felt that morning when they awoke and saw all of those standards around their city. Before lunchtime, they had assembled. They appointed 200 men to go from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, where Pilate's palace was located, where he normally lived and where he ruled Judea from. They raced down to Caesarea, went immediately to the palace of Pilate and insisted on a meeting with him. Pilate sent word that he could not meet with them right then, that he would, however, meet with them the next morning in the stadium. This was a stadium that was located by the Mediterranean Sea. The Romans loved their sports. This is where they watched sporting events, specifically where they watched chariot racing. Several years ago, Katie and I had the chance to go to Israel, and part of this stadium is still standing. In fact, this was a picture that I took while I was there, you can imagine the Romans watching these chariot races while they looked out over the Mediterranean Sea. These 200 Jewish men went to the stadium, and there they spent the night. Early the next morning, Pilate got up, and he went to the stadium, and he went to a place high up in the stands overlooking these 200 Jewish men. A commander stood by his side, and then Roman soldiers entered the stadium and completely encircled these 200 Jews. Uh, Josephus, the Roman historian, doesn't tell us an exact number, but he says there were so many Roman soldiers that they were three deep around these Jews. Pilate looked at them and he said, I understand that you object 
to the Roman standards being placed in Jerusalem. We are in charge, not you. The standards will remain. Go home or I will have all of you put to death. The Jews stood there. They did not move. They did not budge. And in a move that had been pre-orchestrated between Pilate and the Roman army, the Roman soldiers, Pilate simply raised his hand, and when he did, those Roman soldiers drew their swords from their scabbards. Uh, They shone brightly in the morning sun as those swords gleamed in the sky, and then every sword went down and was pointed at the throat of a Jew. Pilate repeated his command, Go home, or I will have all of your throats cut. In another pre-orchestrated move, 199 of those Jewish men immediately fell face down onto the ground, arms outstretched and their necks bared so that they could very clearly show their necks to the Roman soldiers. And one remaining standing Jewish man said, We would rather die than live in a city where graven images of Roman Caesar are all around us. The Roman commander turned to Pilate, and he said, Sir, shall I cut them down now? Shall I have all of their throats cut? Pilate had a decision to make. He knew that he could not begin his reign this way. If there was this kind of bloodbath, if there were riots in Judea, that Rome would not be happy, that likely he would be recalled back to Rome for not being able to control his region any better than this. And so he told the commander, no, let him go home. He removed the standards from Jerusalem, and the Jews won the battle that day, but Pilate hated them for it. Fast forward seven years. Again, the Jews and Pilate are having another confrontation. This time it's not in Caesarea, it's in the big city of Jerusalem. Pilate hated going to Jerusalem, but during the festivals, he knew that he had to be there as a show of power, as a way of keeping the peace. And this time the Jews are once again demanding an audience with Pilate. However, they will not come inside his palace there. They have insisted that if they come inside the palace, that will make them unclean, and they are not able to participate in the festival uh, events, the Passover events, if they go inside his palace. And so they insist that he come outside to meet with them. This just reinforces Pilate's hatred for those people. But for some reason, he agrees, and he comes outside. And this time, the confrontation is over one individual, some individual that they have demanded Pilate to order his execution. In the passage that Ryan read earlier, here is what we discover. Pilate was never against Jesus. In fact, as you read the passage, you discover that Pilate was very much for Jesus. And in that particular passage, Pilate speaks seven sentences, but six of those are questions. Six questions trying to determine how much exactly that he was for Jesus. Let's walk through the passage, and then we'll come back and make some application. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Here's what Matthew records. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. So Pilate, by this point, had heard about Jesus. Jesus was famous in the land of Israel, and so Pilate wants to cut right to the point. 
hey, let's, let's just go ahead and see if we can get the big question answered. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? As others have claimed, are you really the king of the Jews? And the response of Jesus was, you have said so. Uh, something like, your words, not mine. Or, or more specifically, it was, yes, but not a king in the way that you would define king. Because my kingdom is not a kingdom in the way that you would define a kingdom. So, Pilate asked his second question. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Why was Pilate amazed? Because he understood that these charges against Jesus were flimsy at best and most likely completely bogus. And what is the natural human reaction when you're accused of something that you did not do? You defend yourself. You give your side of the story. You give an explanation. You deny what they are saying about you when it is a false accusation. But Jesus never said a word. So Pilate said, don't you hear it? Can't you understand what they are saying? Don't you get the consequences of what they are saying about you? But Jesus remained completely silent. Next verse. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Matthew does not explain why this was the custom of the Roman governor to release, to pardon a criminal on the day of this Passover festival to the crowd. He just tells us this was a custom and that Pilate wanted to stick with this particular custom. Verse 16. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas, So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So here Matthew lets us know that there were two criminals or two accused criminals that day, both with the name Jesus. One was Jesus Barabbas or as some of the other gospels tell us, just Barabbas, and Jesus called the Messiah. And the other Gospels tell us that this Jesus Barabbas had led an insurrection and was a well-known or notorious criminal. And so here Pilate figures this is his way out of having to condemn Jesus. It was his custom, it was his tradition to pardon a criminal. And so he gives them a choice. I can either pardon... Jesus, the Messiah, the one that many have called the King of the Jews, or I can pardon this notorious, awful, guilty criminal named Barabbas. And then Matthew adds this line because he knew that it was out of self-interest that the religious leaders had handed Jesus over. In other words, he knew that the charges against Jesus were bogus, that Jesus had been handed over to him, not because he had committed a crime, but because he had upset the wrong people. And the religious leaders were behind this, and Pilate thought maybe the crowd, the crowd who just days earlier had shouted when Jesus entered Jerusalem, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that now that same crowd would come to the defense of Jesus. And if they asked for Pilate to pardon Jesus, then he could get out of this situation. Next verse. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So in this narrative, Pilate inserts this into the story about Pilate's wife. A tradition calls her Procula, but we're not really sure if that was actually her name. But what we know is that the Romans believed that dreams were messages from the gods. And that very clear dreams, dreams where someone woke up the next morning and they remembered the details of the dream, that clear dreams were very clear messages from the gods. And so Pilate's wife sends a message to Pilate. I've had one of those dreams. One of those very clear dreams. We're not given the details of the dream, but the application is very clear. Do not condemn this man. Have nothing to do with him. He is innocent. And I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of, because of this particular man. Pilate, at this point, desperately wants to get out of this situation. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He does not want to upset his wife. He's got to figure out a way out of having to order the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he makes this offer. I can pardon either the notorious criminal or I can pardon Jesus. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. You see, Pilate here made a serious miscalculation. The miscalculation was just how much the religious leaders hated Jesus and how much they were willing to work the crowd as hard as they needed to to get the crowd stirred up against Jesus the Messiah and to ask for Pilate to release Barabbas. So Barabbas tries, I mean, Pilate tries attempt number one. How can I get out of this? I know I will, I will offer them a way, uh, a pardon, and it will be between Jesus and this notorious criminal. Surely they will choose a criminal. The crowd rejects it. So Pilate makes attempt number two to release Jesus. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked, They all answered, crucify him. So here Pilate thinks, well, maybe I can get out of it. And here's how I can get out of it. They want me to release Barabbas? Sure, I will do that. But as the Roman governor, I can actually release two criminals. So I'll ask him this question. You want me to release Barabbas? Fine. What do you want me to do with Jesus called the Messiah? And if the crowd says nothing, if they squirm a little bit, If they do not give an answer, or if it's just a half-hearted answer, I know I can release both of the condemned individuals that day, and I can get out of having to execute Jesus. But unfortunately, for Pilate, they all answered, crucify him. Pilate, attempt number one, maybe I can pardon, uh, pardon one criminal. Attempt number two, maybe I can pardon two criminals. Finally, there's attempt number three to get out of it. 
Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So Pilate here thinks, I know what I can do. I will ask the crowd, define his crime for me. Pilate knew he had not committed a crime. And if they could not define the crime, maybe I can then say, well, I've got to let him go. And so he says, what crime has he committed? Give me specifics. And the crowd just shouts, crucify him. They couldn't define the crime. There was no crime. But they could shout to Pilate, crucify him. Attempt number one fails. Attempt number two fails. Attempt number three fails. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. It's such a dramatic scene here. There would have been a bowl outside of the palace of Pilate filled with water. Pilate would have used that for washing his hands as he entered into his palace after traveling somewhere. And he goes over to this bowl, and in a very dramatic scene, he dips his hands in the bowl and washes his hands for all of the Jews to see, and he declares, I am innocent. This is not my fault. This is your responsibility. Of course, the proclamation of one's innocent doesn't mean that one is necessarily innocent. And Pilate was not the ultimate judge of his innocence that particular day. However, to the Jews, he says, this is not my fault. Here's how they respond. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And so the crowd responds, fine, it's not your responsibility, it's not your fault. We will take responsibility. His blood is on us and on our children. Now sadly, this particular verse has been used over the centuries as a justification for the persecution of Jews. It was not meant that way at all. Matthew was Jewish. The audience that Matthew wrote to was Jewish. Matthew did not mean this as a way to condemn the Jews. What he meant by this particular verse is that the generations who followed this crowd, including all of us, are all guilty of the blood of Jesus. Finally, here's how the passage ends. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate all day long could say, this is not my fault and I am innocent. But right here at the end, when the rubber met the road, Pilate made three decisions that made it very clear that it was his responsibility. The first was he had the very guilty Barabbas pardoned and released and he let him go. Secondly, he had Jesus flogged. Flogging was taking a whip that had several leather strands, and on the ends of those strands, there were pieces of metal and bone, and a Roman soldier would take that whip, and with the condemned tied to a post, would strike the condemned, and a skilled Roman soldier would know how to let those pieces of metal and bone dig into the flesh of the condemned, hold it there for a second, and then rip out chunks of flesh. A very good Roman soldier could bring a criminal or a condemned right to the brink of death before they faced uh, crucifixion. So Pilate releases Barabbas, he has Jesus flogged, and then finally he gives the official order for the crucifixion of Jesus. Only the Roman governor 
had this power. When you read this passage, it it is very clear that Pilate was never against Jesus. In fact, in many ways, he was very much for Jesus. And throughout the passage, you see that Pilate is trying again and again and again to find some way to release Jesus, to let him go, to not have to crucify Jesus. And he almost succeeds, but not quite. When you read the passage, you see that Pilate almost made the right decision. But not quite. There standing on the portico of his palace with Jesus who is ultimate truth standing right in front of him. Pilate almost embraced that truth. But not quite. And I think it's fair to say that 2,000 years ago on that Friday morning that Pilate almost found salvation in Jesus. Almost, but not quite. And at the end of the day, almost saved is still just really, really lost. In our culture today, today, I wonder how many people are almost Christians. In our culture today, how many people are almost saved? They're almost followers of Christ. They've almost made the right decision about Jesus. They've almost embraced truth. They've almost found salvation, but not quite. And at the end of the day, almost saved is still just really, really lost. On your message map, you'll find three things that we see in this passage that really define what it means to be an almost Christian. The first is this, almost Christians value the world over the way. That is very clear in the life of Pilate. There was a reason that Pilate did not let Jesus go. There was a reason that he had Jesus condemned. The reason was that he knew that if he let Jesus go, that there would be an uproar. And if there was an uproar, if there was a riot, that word would get to Rome. And if word got to Rome that Pilate was unable to control the region over which he ruled, that he would be called back to answer for that, likely he would lose his power, he might lose his wealth, he might even lose his life. And Pilate, when the rubber hit the road, when he had to make a decision, Pilate chose the world over the way, the truth, and the life. There may be some of you in here this morning, and this defines you. If I asked you, you would say, I am not against Jesus at all. In fact, I am very much for Jesus. However, if we sat down and we had a conversation, you would say, you know, there have been so many times that I've almost committed to Jesus But I'm scared because I've got so much. I am concerned. I am nervous that if I commit my life to Christ, that I no longer become the owner of everything that I have. I become the manager. And the owner becomes Jesus. And he may tell me to do something with what I've got that I do not want to do. There's a reason that Jesus said to his followers, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. It's not that someone with wealth has to go through extra steps. 
It's not that they have to do more religious things or work their way into heaven. It's not that at all. What Jesus meant was this. Those who have been given a lot many times do not see their need for Christ. And there may be some of you in here, and you have been given a lot. And you have nothing against Jesus. You're very much for Jesus. And you have several times come very close to salvation. However, not quite. Almost, but not quite. And at the end of the day, almost saved is still just really, really lost. Secondly, almost Christians value self-justification over Christ's justification. Again, go back to that dramatic scene in the passage. Pilate walks over to this bowl of water and he washes his hands for all of the Jews to see and he declares, I am innocent of this man's blood. However, we know that a bowl of water cannot cover moral guilt. That there are stains on our souls that cannot be washed away with water and excuses cannot justify us. And again, there may be some of you in here today, and if we sat down and we had a conversation together, you would say you're not against Jesus at all. In fact, you're very much for Jesus. However, you've never made that decision to truly follow Christ because of any number of excuses. You said, you know, I would do it. I would commit. I would follow Christ. Except life is just so busy right now. With my schedule, I'm running in every direction, and Sunday mornings I am busy, and I just cannot make that commitment right now. And God surely understands just how busy my life is. Or if we sat down and had a conversation, you might say something like, you know, I would commit, but no one in my workplace would understand. My boss would not understand, my coworkers would not understand, and I might lose my job if I committed my life to Christ. And surely God wants me to have a job and to be able to provide for my family. Surely God understands. Or if we sat down and had a conversation, you might say, I'm close, I would like to do this, but none of my friends are committed to Christ. And surely God wants me to have friends. And if I committed to Christ, then I would lose all of my friends. And you've excused and excuse and excuse, and you've almost made that decision, but not quite. And at the end of the day, almost saved is still just really, really lost. And finally, here's the last thing. Almost Christians value tradition over the truth. When you zoom out from the story off of the person of Pilate, And you look at the crowd that was gathered that day in the courtyard, the crowd that was screaming to crucify Jesus, here is what we know about that crowd. They were a very religious group of people. They were there celebrating Passover. They were there to go to the temple. They were there to go and pray. They were observing the religious rituals. But they were far from God. They were far from being saved. They were far away because their hearts were not in line with the truth. And at the end of the day, religious rituals cannot justify us before God. And there may be some of you in here today, and this is you. You grew up in a Christian home. You've observed the religious rituals. 
you've done all of those things and, and you have almost found salvation, but not quite. Here's what you need to understand. Religious rituals alone cannot save. Observing the high holidays like Easter and Christmas alone are not enough for salvation. Growing up in a Christian home alone is not enough for salvation. Going to a Christian school alone is not enough for salvation. Saying the blessing before a meal is not enough for salvation. Even getting baptized alone is not enough for salvation. And let me take a moment and just speak very plainly here. If you are someone who has gone through the religious rituals, but you have never committed your life to Christ, here's what I would say about you. You are almost saved. And at the end of the day, almost saved is still just really, really lost. There's not a lot about Pilate outside of the Bible. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Pilate, a few years after Jesus was crucified, was recalled to Rome for an uprising that happened. He was called to give an account, and then after that, he virtually disappears from the pages of history. However, the the early Christian writer Tertullian says that Pilate and his wife both later became Christians. In fact, in the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Egyptian Orthodox Church, they have adopted this as part of their tradition. And in their church, they actually have a Saint Pilate. Doesn't really roll off the tongue like Saint Peter or Saint Paul, but they have a Saint Pilate. And we do not know if that's true or not. However, that story does illustrate this truth that we see over and over and over in the Bible. That no one, no one, no one is ever beyond salvation. No one is ever beyond forgiveness. That even the man who condemned Jesus and sentenced him to die on the cross, that later had he confessed his sins and asked Jesus to come into his life, that he would have found forgiveness and eternal life. What would it have taken for Pilate to do that? It would have taken Pilate to to look at everything that the world had to offer him and to look at all of that and to say, no, Jesus is better. And there may be some of you in here today and you're an almost Christian. You've almost embraced Christ. You've almost gotten there. But today you're ready to close that gap and to make that final decision. And here's why. Here's why you're ready, because you have looked around at everything else in life, and you have said, it's just not doing it. You have looked at everything that you have accomplished. You have looked at everything that God has given you. You have looked at everything else in life, and you have said, it's just not filling that hole in my heart. And you've searched the world, and you have found that it cannot fill you. And that man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. And today for you, today for you, you are ready to embrace Christ and to say, I'm willing to give up my life so that I may embrace that which is truly life.